0: Welcome to the Slightly Evil podcast, where in 30 minutes, we aim to arm you with new, non-obvious, fun, and effective ways to improve your work culture. We also discuss hot topics in the DNI space and contrarian viewpoints. I am your host, Kedar Iyer. Today, our guest is Joanna Zatkovich, partner at Industry & Co in Hong Kong. Recently, Joanna left the corporate sector To join a creative and agile work environment but her journey was long and involved braving new and culturally challenging work environments with joanna today we'll be exploring her career progression how she overcame obstacles and her advice to achieve career success joanna welcome to the slightly evil podcast before we get started into um, learning a little bit about what you do today, um, we very often don't hear much about where leaders get started. And I'd like you to tell our listeners where it all began for you.
1: Thanks, Keda. I, I really appreciate being here. So some might argue I'm still not out of the blocks yet, much less started. But in uh, Actual practical terms, I uh, started more than four decades ago in Manly in New South Wales, which is on the lovely beaches of northern Sydney. And I'm Australian, as you uh, probably can pick up by my accent. Um, I went to school and university in Perth in Western Australia. So very lucky for lifestyle, fresh air, beautiful beaches, and what you might call a pretty idyllic, normal, low-key life. Uh, I'm an only child and it was just my mum and I, so I kind of ran my own life from a very young age. Uh, my mum used to travel a lot for work and was away a fair bit, so I was staying with various relatives and I struck a deal with her that I was, uh, I'd like to stay at home on my own from about the age of 12, uh, so I had quite a lot of freedom relative to my friends, but I wasn't too naughty aside from uh, <coughs> a few minor transgressions at the time. Uh, but I went to a fantastic girls school that was very nurturing, very supportive. And I still have good friends from my first year starting there. And uh, we had some fantastic teachers also who inspired and challenged us to think, you know, to be good people as well as bright students and, and good achievers. And I'm still involved with that school today as a mentor. And when it came to university, well, I was just trying to get into the subjects I wanted really. There were no thoughts of a gap year or anything amazing or interesting that you see happening these days. Um, And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I was steered towards an arts law degree uh, because that seemed like the right idea because in those days you were steered more towards professions like law or medicine or commerce. And I certainly didn't have the maths for medicine and uh, I'm still not great with blood. So uh, medicine was definitely out. Uh, And I could debate and did mock trial at school. And so law school looked like a probable bet And I could talk the leg off a chair, so why not, right? This was a good choice. But as I was finishing my undergraduate arts course, I was watching a current affairs show on television and I thought, oh, I can do that. And I knew I could write and I have a pretty strong, you know, curiosity about life in general, fairly nosy, I still do. Uh, So I decided to become a journalist and began knocking on doors and writing letters for work experience uh, in Perth and also in Sydney and Melbourne. And in my mind, it got me out of doing more study. Uh, I wanted to earn money, run my life and get going, or what I thought was getting going back then. And so I organised a week's work experience at a television news station in Melbourne, uh, Victoria, through a friend. Moved across the country with uh, not a lot of prospects, but a hell of a lot of chutzpah and
0: determination and started what became my then media career. That's fascinating. Uh, You started off in media and then... Where are you today now? You're not in media for sure. Not at all. I'm in a technology
1: company. So I've kind of gone from journalist, uh, pivoted into being into the corporate world. I wanted to do a more business role after 10 years of uh, radio and television. I just felt the urge to look more at business. I, I don't know why. I think I was a bit tired also of running around constantly uh traveling and although of course people would say are you crazy that's a fantastic thing to do and it was I loved it but I pivoted went back to grad school did uh, a degree in a business master's and then realized in order to get the experience I had to start working my way through corporate so I did that but media was a fantastic life I was a sports journalist general news journalist television presenter weather presenter it was a it was great time
0: so talk to us a little bit about this transition, because uh, it reminds me a little bit about even my own career, you know, and in, in where I started, where I've had to kind of, for every time I have wanted to switch roles or switch uh, functions... It's not easy uh, in in today's world, at least for young graduates, when I look at someone who starts off you know, maybe um, in in a certain career and then two years in, they find "Mm, this is not really the thing that I want to do, I want to do something else. They'd be lucky if they have the luxury of loving what they do and then trying and pursuing another thing. But I can still imagine there must have been certain challenges that you had to overcome to move from one function or one industry sector to another. You're absolutely right, Khaira, and it was a case of, the the next career
1: path for ex-journalists or TV presenters was usually in corporate affairs or to be a PR person government or for a large corporate. And I had not really I'd worked in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth, so I'd lived in other bigger cities in Australia, but I had no real sense of was I even any good? Was I smart? Some of these words like strategic communications plan, what is that? And I really wasn't sure myself. I knew I could kick indoors and stand in front of a camera and wear makeup. That's not really a life skill forever. So I actually went to a um, a psychometric, an industrial psychologist to do psychometrics because I wanted to find out how smart was I really? What sort of ability to learn did I have? And this was kind of the idea I had and thought I wanted to do around org design, the way businesses worked, talent, people. And in Australia at the time, there was a big change going on in the industrial relations landscape. Uh, uh, the government was had a, a mandate or a, a, an agenda, I guess you could say, to move away from union-based uh, workplaces and have non-union collective agreements and to have individual contracts with workers. So it was quite a watershed moment for Australian workplaces. And I found that quite interesting. So whilst I was going to the uh, industrial psychologist to basically get assessed, I then got a series of views around what areas could I go into. And one of them was HR management. Now, if I think of my dealings with HR people, they weren't that inspiring. And I certainly didn't feel I wanted to be one of those, in adverted commas. But I went and did a grad dip, initially in industrial law, but then it became a grad dip in employee relations and then a master's in human resource management to have the qualification credentials, then I realized I needed work experience. So I've done it before, I did it again, started knocking on doors with various contacts and friends, fathers who were in various companies and got work experience at a mining company, rewriting some of their employment agreements and worked into a, a temporary contract, which then became a permanent job offer with a mining company, which then I went from being the chick on TV to the woman flying in and out on a nine-day-on, five-day-off roster on the edge of the desert in uh, northwestern Australia. It was uh, quite a contrast.
0: It must have been also quite a contrast with regards to the work cultures in the two different sectors. Indeed. and Talk to us a little bit about how you were able to cope with the difference because I can imagine... Uh, you know, a mining company, even from the outside, doesn't seem like, you know, how a TV or radio station uh, might come. <laughs> no. <laughs> and you can bet the
1: first day I, I rocked up and uh, people started looking and they looked again. And the television station I worked for was uh, streamed on the a satellite television in the country in Western Australia. So several people knew who I was and they kept looking at me going, what are you doing here? So... It, You're right. I had to overcome the bias or the the perception that I was, frankly, some sort of screen bimbo who couldn't really do much. And I was very keen to show that I was credible. I was here to do a job. It had nothing to do with media. I didn't want to talk about media. And I'd gone from wearing, you know, pastel jackets and helmet hair to wearing personal protective equipment, steel cap boots, hard hat and a, a cap lamp driving a four-wheel drive underground uh, on the decline where they had an underground mine that was about 550 meters uh, deep. So you're absolutely right. It was about managing expectations, perceptions, uh, basically just being professional, uh, listening carefully, being diligent, It was very long hours, the shifts were 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then often at night I'd have to drive into site and maybe do some uh, inspections late in the night with the night shift crew because it's a 24 hour production cycle. But the opportunity was to learn about mineral economics. That's how the business made money and you needed to understand that. But also I needed to understand more about how do you build a workforce uh, model, especially in mining when production is really all about getting dirt out of the ground to extract a resource so there's the work function piece and then i had to think about what sort of contracts did we have what sort of benefits do we want to offer people in such a challenging environment the industry was starting to pick up and professionalize and becoming uh, quite the place to go to you could earn a lot of money so of course um, compensation and benefits was an issue Uh, the impact on families for these people who are out on site working long rosters away from their families often many had had quite difficult personal lives and personal situations. And then there was the fact that I was one of about eight women on a site of 200 odd men. Uh, And the things that go with that, frankly, yes, some of the behaviour, some of the comments, uh, it was difficult. There were times where you really, I, I just did not enjoy working in that kind of environment. But I made some fantastic friendships and I had a fantastic boss and mentor a chap who took the chance to hire me when a lot of people would have said, What are you doing? She doesn't know what she's doing. But he saw that I was serious. He worked me very hard and it was very challenging. But man, I, I owe him a lot. He he gave me a great opportunity to pivot and change my career.
0: I'd add to that that um, you you also have you know a lot of resilience because you know in today's Culture and, and and you know reactionary mode of you know how we get outraged by by things. Uh, you today, someone getting into the mining industry may not last even you know a week, uh, and, and you lasted years. Uh, you know going through or, or even having to you know overcome some of the things that you heard uh, or you know even having to challenge people on the job. Perhaps can you talk a little bit about maybe some examples of even working in in such a highly male dominated Walk, please. Certainly, yeah.
1: And as you rightly called out, there, there are many. And But I do think that the time, this was, you know, 2002, 2003, uh, I think people were a little more patient with each other. You know, social media was not prolific then. Google had really only been around a few years then, let's face it. So people took you at face value although they had their views they certainly weren't texting each other on site we had no phone signals except in camp because a wireless was only in camp so it was a very different world where your relationships were face to face when you saw people and when you didn't see them that's it so sometimes when I know they, they had a resident manager which is the role that runs the mine and this chap was a very experienced mining engineer Uh, who was only several years older than myself, and he was not impressed when I turned up. He even said to my boss, who was one of the group heads, who technically was more senior than the resident manager but would fly up and down to site a lot, he even said to him one day, seriously, when I walked past. I heard him say that as I walked past and had passed them talking. And I I felt disappointed because he clearly was just looking at me as a, a woman new to site. And one day we were having a chat and I said, look, I realize I'm probably not the optimal hire for you, but I'll work really hard. I said, I'm smart, I'm here to do a job, please just give me a chance. And we actually became quite good friends. And by the time I actually moved on uh, from this company to do some more study, uh, he was actually quite a supporter. So it's one of those lessons, I guess, that yes, when you first arrive, you mightn't be everyone's cup of tea, but just keep your head down. Keep true about what you come to do and the role you have and just hope that things change. Not everyone's going to like you. And certainly this chap was not trying to actively sabotage me. And we had a few, let's say, robust discussions about what I felt things should be. So, for example, one day I was doing underground inspections of the meshing and the meshing is the ground support system that you put in after you've done digging into a particular area of the mind to develop and build out the mind so you can then... Do what we call production mining where you actually pull the stuff out of the wall and I said look I don't think the meshing's secure I still want to keep the area roped off until one of the engineers comes to do an inspection and he said no nope, we've got to hurry up we're behind on production this is it and I argued back and I said look no it's just not worth it what if the rock falls down someone is injured and there was a fatality at the mine the previous year not when I was there I mean this is serious stuff we're talking about so we had a discussion, we had a bit of a, a debate. He said, I'm the resident manager, I pull rank. I said, yes, but I can call head office and also put the call in. So come on, can we not do the hierarchy, you know, um, rank pull? And in the end, we agreed and we came to the same outcome. But yeah, it was hard. It was it was challenging, but fun, right? And I don't regret
0: it at all. I learned a lot. What's the role uh, where you are now? Can you talk a little bit about that? And, and also... Um, uh, if you can, highlight what it is that you know, makes you suitable for what you do today because uh, I'm having a tough time <laughs> connecting the dots, so help me with this. <laughs>
1: Certainly, Kedar. Trust me, there's some days where I have trouble doing the same. So I'm with Industry & Co now, which is a, a, a tech, a venture-build tech company, and these are a group of really smart people who basically, if I sum it up, they design, define, and build companies, uh, whether for enterprise clients like large banks, such as building a peer-to-peer payment app, or uh, user experience, design flow, or developing an offer bot that will push offers to customers and talk with customers online. And we work with all sorts of technology, uh, have a range of offerings, blockchain, AI on the tech side, uh, user experience, design flow, as I mentioned, agile coaching. And you're absolutely right. Today, I'm in a uh, non-HR, non-industrial relations role. Basically, is what they call a partner, and a partner in the, in this company simply means that you're a client relationship person who manages the client side of the relationship, as opposed to the tech. Uh, I can't code; I'm not a techie. Uh, if I need to understand code, I need a software engineer to sit there with me and run it through on the screen and tell me what the commands are and things like that. Where the journey came was in order. I went to the mind side because, at the time, as I said, it was an obvious place where I could get Good work, good work experience to build up my professional toolkit as an HR, industrial relations practitioner. So in my mind, when I was planning the pivot, I needed the qualifications. I had that. I was about to get my master's. I then needed the experience to start showing that this was a deliberate and focused and credible change on my CV. Because as you say, headhunters would look at you and go, are you serious? You've gone from television to this? And Why? Uh, So, throughout my life, as I've moved through into more corporate strategic HR roles based out of London and working across Europe, and now moving into the tech side, they've really been roles that have been around leadership or commercial management. And whilst the HR piece was a fantastic opportunity to look across the strategic people uh, agenda of any company, and I've worked in various sectors, so in my mind, once you build your skill and your expertise in that, you can shift basically across any sector unless there's something you want deep sector experience in or or to stay in. And where I started doing that was in London when I got a role with Barclays as the uh, VP of the global payment acceptance business, VP of HR rather. And this payment acceptance is effectively uh, point of sale terminals where you pay with your credit card or when you pay online at the payment gateway when you're online on an e-commerce site. And that was my industry. I fairly much worked in the various industrial industries, but when I found that one, I thought, hey, I like this, I understand the economics of it, it's interesting, and it had a B B two C play. So whilst you're selling the product to businesses, it's businesses and merchants that need to be able to accept payments from customers. In fact, ultimately, it's the customer experience via the merchant that matters, that's what we're dealing with. So it was a great way to understand the value chain of payments in general from the issuing bank side to the merchant bank side. And then uh, it was an opportunity for me to become really, uh, I guess seen as an industry person, so I work in the payment space. And through that, when I was working with one of the American companies in London, First Data, I. Got a great opportunity again from a great sponsor and mentor, a chap I worked with who sponsored me into running the actual PL for the business out of Asia here in Hong Kong where I had been living with my husband. So I had, was in London working for First Starter but commuted back and forth to Hong Kong. So I then took over the commercial piece of the p here in Asia. So you're right, the journey for that, to, from mining, media, mining to, to corporate or payments, now into tech has really been a transition of working through roles that are leadership roles but rather than being on the strategic uh people or or i guess what you call the non-revenue generating side of a business getting into the commercial side and now getting into the tech development side and how i jumped into this particular company and i've only been here a couple of months is i was hired as a as a GM into uh, Commonwealth Bank of Australia up here in Hong Kong a couple of years ago to basically deploy a biometric kiosk uh, that was technology that had been developed by a South African uh, startup that Commonwealth Bank had bought. They'd bought the company to be able to develop this technology. And I was hired to deploy and prove the concept of this technology into Indonesia in one of the banking entities we have down there. Uh, And we did it in eight and a half months, and that technology is live today. Customers can go to the kiosk, whether in a branch or in some of the shopping malls and and restaurants there, and basically open an account, print out a debit card, activate the debit card in a little pin entry device on the side of the kiosk, and have a live bank account to transact with in under
0: 10 minutes. It's, It's quite revolutionary. So in addition to actively trying to pursue different opportunities, it looks like, you're also quite actively involved in improving diversity and equality. Um, And we often find that people who do, you know, work around diversity and inclusion seem to have some sort of personal reason why they do it, or there's like a trigger moment, or there's like something that's impacted them that they feel they should give back. Uh, what's your personal connection to diversity and inclusion? I'm always mindful in a
1: question like that of not wanting to uh, claim or assume the the uh, status of others who really haven't had an easy time of life. Now, as a, as a woman, there are I think we as as women have. It's quite um, a time at the moment in, in history where I think women are standing up and saying, I do not accept being treated poorly. I do not accept being treated uh, in an abusive or or exploitative way. And not that we ever did or should, and certainly my mother and my grandmother would, would also say they don't accept that either. But it's quite as you know, it's quite topical at the moment. I think it's also important though uh, having changed careers and worked in very harsh male-dominated environments where, I'll be frank, uh, people weren't fair and decisions were made about me purely on my sex as I walk in the door and I was treated accordingly. I've never felt the urge to, to, and I say this really carefully, so I say the headline to play the female card. And when I, what I mean when I say that, to not be disrespectful, is I don't want any special benefits or or, uh, concessions as a female, but I do expect to be treated fairly as a person now. We know not all workplaces and environments are going to give that. I think to your question of a a personal situation, my time uh, in, again, male dominated environments, I, I remember in media, there was a new owner who took over the company. And the first thing he did was ask for camera tapes of all on-air talent to be assessed. And we all had to have our librarians collate uh, various reels of of stand-up so they could see us in action. But it was interesting to note that the people who then uh, started leaving the company a few months after that exercise were women. And the feeling at the time was, well, it's those women who management decided weren't glam enough on camera who were being asked to leave it was purely an appearance judgment issue I don't know I was not privy to that uh, final decision I was not asked to leave so I guess by that rationale you'd say I was safe or I was acceptable but it really does remind you that life isn't fair and there are some pretty I would say dodgy Uh, poor value decisions that go on every day in organisations that women in particular are subject to, but also people who don't fit, frankly, the majority agenda or face of an organisation. I am delighted that with this particular company I work for, Industry & Co, an Australian company, uh, that's you a small company, only 150 people. When I went to the head office recently, the number of different faces, the number of different nationalities. We had female software engineers from Colombia. We have others from Brazil. We have a Sri uh, Lankan-born Australian chap up here, one of our leading light uh, engineers. He really is is quite a a very bright chap, almost um, mysteriously so. We have people, from Southern Africa, we have Americans, British, Indian, so many different faces and perspectives. I love it. And it means we are enriched every day in how we think, how we decide, our engagement styles, just the lens that you bring to a problem. It's quite refreshing. And although in corporate, yes, there's a mix, and yes, we know we need diverse workplaces, I've actually not seen it in action in such a concentrated form than I have in this company. And it's fantastic. And I really enjoy the buzz and the uh, collective goodwill that that seems
0: to bring. In Hong Kong, you talked about, you know, uh, working at Industry & Co in Hong Kong and it being such a diverse place. When you look at other companies uh, in Hong Kong, uh, do you see a similar picture? Or do you see some challenges there uh, that folks need to get over? I see challenges, definitely, definitely. Uh, So Hong Kong now, and
1: it's a sort of assimilation back into China since the handover in 97. Naturally, it's a a local company and and the number of what they call guailo faces or white faces from the British uh, colonial time is diminishing. And I do think that's that's the right thing. This is not Britain. And it's right that as a country in, in China or a Chinese country, obviously, there are Chinese faces. What I note, though, Kedar, and it's it's quite topical amongst some of the mentees in the Women's Foundation mentoring program this year in the cohort. A lot of them uh, are from various nationalities: uh, a Romanian, Hungarian lady, a, a Dutch, Belgian lady. A lot of them are feeling pressure to leave and develop their careers back in their home countries because the subtle or not so subtle messages they're getting is your face doesn't fit. It's not Chinese. Uh, And whilst that's understandable, you don't see a cast of thousands of of Singaporean Hong Konger Thai faces in, in London companies. I mean, the numbers are smaller there and that's all right and fair. I would like to see more embracing of, of diversity here. I think they're on their journey is what I would say in a respectful way. Uh, certainly Cantonese and Mandarin are the dominant languages here, fair enough. It's, again, we're in China. But I don't think diversity as we would define it in a Western context is necessarily embraced here. In fact, on the contrary, there's a very strong move here towards very patriotic, uh, employer your own, uh, culture. And I think sometimes companies miss a trick with that. Certainly Western uh, multinationals that are here absolutely understand the importance of diversity. You are seeing a lot uh, more different faces around Central, which is the small part of Hong Kong Island. And it's nice to see because you see it everywhere in London, in New York, in Sydney, but you're starting to see a little bit more blend of the faces whether that's translating through to culture and behaviours in organisations, I think they've got a little bit of a ways to go.
0: So we find that a lot of you know, multinational companies that are headquartered in, let's say, London or New York or, or San Francisco, um, reach out to their you know, regional offices or global offices around the world and, and try to impose, sort of like you said, their definition of diversity um ethnic uh, and gender diversity in to their local offices and sometimes we find that maybe that's not appropriate because the diversity challenges of the local office Are slightly more nuanced or or slightly different because the cultural context is different. The situation that they need to bring parity towards is different. Do you see that a lot of the diversity narrative is kind of imposed by the West in Hong Kong, or is it, you know, has it got its own flavour of diversity? And if there is, what is it? Very, very thoughtful question. And yes,
1: the word imposed—it sounds so. aggressive and thoughtless. But but you're right, there is that feeling. So I guess if anyone is on the journey to something and is a little further up the road, it's often natural for them to feel, okay, well, we've broken ground on this. We understand the pros and cons, some of the mistakes, some of the blunders you might make in trying to get somewhere good for our organization or our people. It's, it's natural to then want to reach back and tell others, okay, avoid this pitfall. This is how you should do it. It's, it's a human, very human thing. So I guess I'm patient and uh, understanding of why some of these companies do that. The flip side of that is, though, it doesn't work. And you need to be mindful of not being instructive and tell and, frankly, um, lecturing of, oh, this is how you should do it. This is what good looks like. Because yes, it may be in in that context that that's embraced. If diversity is not embraced, you almost need to ask yourself why and try and understand that first. I don't think it's because Hong Kongers or or Chinese necessarily don't like foreigners in a xenophobic negative sense. I think there's just a very strong drive for um, more nationalist, patriotic, we are proud Chinese. Of course we want to be with Chinese people. Now, what that means, how that works for, for me or, or anyone else in a company that is a local company, it can be very challenging because you're often excluded from conversations because of the languages. I was speaking to a lady just just two days ago who has this exact issue. She's uh, in her late 20s. She's the only, she's Italian. She's the only uh, foreign born woman in her area. And whilst her boss speaks very good English and has been educated overseas in the West, he comes back to Hong Kong and and really seems to have forgotten all that uh, embracing, uh, inclusive uh, experience that he might have had. And she often feels excluded. But as she said, look, this is perhaps just they're on their journey. They're not as aware of how important it is to include people and have my voice at the table as well as their own. And you just have to work with it. Uh, really, there's there's really no other option because it's either work with it, adapt, or leave. For a lot of these people, that, that really is the only option and, and no one wants to do that because there are many joys and benefits of working here.
0: And would you say that this is primarily uh, maybe an issue of uh, including expats in the sort of local work environment? Is that the, the biggest hurdle that, let's say, the Chinese or the the folks in Hong Kong uh, need to deal with and, and, and come to grips with? It depends on the
1: workplace. So I know there are some workplaces, uh, even where local Hong Kongers, are a little hostile to some mainland Chinese colleagues. Uh, there is has been recent uh, political challenges here and uh, there is some tension uh, throughout the the city uh, towards the mainland Chinese agenda, certainly from Beijing. I think it really does depend on the environment and the leadership, like anything. It's the tone that is set by the leadership as to whether that's acceptable to try and exclude your colleagues or or be careless in your dealings with them and thoughtless about whether you've taken their view into account. For some, they just don't have that worldview. And I would put myself in that category Before I left Australia to work overseas, I probably did not think about what someone from overseas coming to work in Australia thought about Australia or how they felt about it. Those times where you're trying to get the sense of what are the subtle nuances of a workplace or or a country, uh, the little rituals and and signs that you miss completely because you're not in on it. Uh, It can seem very lonely and very uh, exclusive, like you're being shut out. But you also then have to pick yourself up and say, okay, well, try and understand why that is and start building bridges and see if often locals are aware that that's what's being perceived by you. Often they just don't realise. And when you say, I find it really difficult when you switch to your own language, your conversation when we're all just speaking in English, some of them will say, oh, look, I'm sorry, I just don't know the words for this area of technology. So I switch to Cantonese because it's easier for me to get the message across, I'll come back to you in English. I just need to think it out in my language first. Understandable. English as a second language is is hard work for them. And I certainly am not great at Cantonese and certainly wasn't great at Polish and certainly wasn't great at German when I was in those countries. So it's also just being a little patient and just understanding we're not all trying to kill each other or exclude each other or or be awful. Sometimes we just forget and be thoughtless human beings and you just have to ask.
0: Yeah, it sounds almost like a case of, uh, you know, uh, both sides meeting somewhere in the middle um, and kind of reaching out to each other um, rather than a case of maybe exclusion um, on a systematic level, um, which is encouraging. Uh, Now, uh, let's move to some of your personal thoughts and let's start with maybe some contrarian ones. Uh, You've had, you know, so many different, uh, you know, I would say professional avatars uh, along along your uh, career trajectory. What is one long-held professional belief that you've changed from back in the media days? <laughs> so
1: many. I, I don't think I could mention it in one. But one of the headings, I think, when you first start out and you think everyone's much smarter than you and you know everyone's to get to the top you must be really good and the best in your field so i guess one of the things i would say is you know that only good people get to the top and even as i say that it sounds so naive uh just even saying that aloud i guess it's it's absolutely not true and while there are some really really good ceos and senior leaders at the top of companies i've worked for and that i see across the industries in general there are far fewer than you'd realize, and certainly that I realized. And by far, I've actually found that the the people who truly understand the meaning of life, who have the wisdom, the deeply held values of respect, mindfulness, um, who who build great teams and create room for other people to soar in their careers, are not necessarily at the top. They're they're often dotted around organizations at various levels. Um, So, Being great doesn't mean you'll get to the top. And being at the top isn't necessarily the best view of the organization. It's certainly what I've come to realize as I've worked with CEOs. I was an executive coach with with a couple of senior leaders here in Hong Kong a few years ago. It just, you can be anywhere in an organization. Just because you're going up doesn't mean you've made it. And because you're not at the top doesn't mean you haven't made it. It's actually the small L leaders that I refer to that really make an organization great. And I've been very fortunate to work with several of those types over time in, in all my various guises of career. Um, and certainly my thinking, my character are richer for it. Uh, yeah, that's quite a revelation. You, you, and maybe that's maturity and wisdom, I suspect, on my part.
0: What would you say is a contrarian opinion that you hold about, let's say, the women's movement or you know, broadly the, the diversity movement as it stands today.
1: So I had a heated debate with someone a few years ago about this and based on my own experiences. So the Me Too movement, very topical at the moment. It, it's a real uh, lightning rod for, for many things. For me, having been in very male environments, and I've talked about this with a couple of female friends, the daily Small assaults, insults, put downs, sometimes subtle, not so subtle, uh, harassment, whatever you want to call it, we've had it and I guess it forms you and how you choose to respond to that is really the only thing you can control. But one thing I, I say that is a bit contrarian and it's a shame because I don't think it should be or necessarily is, But the thing I say to to other young women I've worked with over the years or who have experienced similar uh, slights and insults, and certainly to the mentees I say, you are not a victim. How you respond to that is totally your choice. And whilst absolutely acknowledge that it may be distressing, it's insulting, it makes you angry, absolutely feel all of those things. Get justice. If if that's important to you, do it. And if it's right, absolutely do it. But you're not a victim. And how you choose to wear that experience going forward is entirely up to you. So I I often ask people to really get in touch with their sense of uh, indignation and understand what's driving it. Uh, Yes, there are some jerks in the world. Women who are jerks to other people. World's full of them. Life is not fair. Not everyone's a good person. But I'm damned if I'm going to be defined by other people's bad actions and wear that like a badge. It just doesn't work for me personally. And I try and caution young women who try and make themselves some sort of, I think you're harassing me. That question was was offensive, da-da-da. I'd I'd just like people to check their outrage a little more before they respond and just realise you don't have to own this
0: slight. Let it go. How would you say people should stay motivated when dealing with setbacks? You talked about, you know, moving on, uh, not, being, not feeling like a victim. But then, uh, you know, how do you, how do you stay motivated if you kept, keep getting beaten down or, on a daily basis, either at work or generally in life? Yeah, Ed, it's hard. There are days where you have absolutely
1: those, I just want to stay in bed, pull the covers over my head, and retreat. There, absolutely, there are do- those days. And whilst it's very easy for me to be succinct in sound bites, in, in organised thoughts, in a forum like this, I tell you, there are days of reflection and absolute. What the hell have I done? Where? What? What am I even thinking? Gosh, if I had a dollar for every time I thought that, I'd be. I could retire now. But I guess, f- certainly for me, I've not always had it easy in life. But let's be clear: I'm not in northern Iraq. You know, I'm not in Syria. I I guess I keep an eye on the big picture and just keep your perspective. You know, there's always someone worse off. Honestly, most of my setbacks are are, are self-made, frankly, and are first world problems, really. Frustrating to me, absolutely. Is this part of my grand plan, whatever that even looks like these days? Probably not. But in the great scheme of cosmic karma, seriously, move on. And when I catch myself, and sometimes I don't catch myself soon enough, you know, starting to do the, oh, this is so unfair. I'm like, seriously, shut up. So I guess for me personally, and it sounds very glib, just take the perspective and reflect and know that everyone has hard times, but the only thing I can change about it is really how I feel about it. Not every day am I that bold and that confident and that, you know, robust with it. Some days I feel very, very fragile about things but just keep it in perspective. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Keep it small, keep it in perspective and just breathe. And no, a friend's mother told me this when I was eight years old and we'd had a big fight on the front lawn and I retreated to my house down the road and she retreated to hers. And her mother came down to see me and said, you know, so and is really upset. She said, and I know you're upset, but this will pass. It really will pass. And you know what? They are wise words for an eight-year-old that I still hold dear today.
0: It passes. One final question. Do you believe in rituals? I do, but I don't know that I'm consistent enough in enough areas to do that. Then let's see. Do you have a certain ritual that you kind of start your day with or end your day with?
1: Ah, now that's an easy one. Yes, I'm a prolific morning person. One of those annoying people who can get up at 4.30. No problems. Uh, The alarm goes off. We're out of bed. My husband and I go out and feed uh, some street cats as part of our work with an animal charity here in Hong Kong every morning, seven days a week. Uh, Then we go to the gym about 5.30 and uh, prepare for the day. I love it. It's my absolute secret sauce. Early mornings, Get your exercise done in the morning then whatever happens it's in the bank for me for
0: us we've done good we feel good day's going to be good hopefully ah uh, that's excellent uh, that makes me inspired to hit the gym uh, first thing tomorrow morning <laughs> um so joanna thank you so much for this conversation this podcast is brought to you by gap jumpers on a mission to eradicate workplace bias by 2025 if you fear that unconscious bias is harming your company, Cap Jumpers can help you design a program to eradicate it. If you've enjoyed listening to this conversation, do share this podcast and also send us your comments. Thank you for listening to the Slightly Evil podcast.